Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Your host, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, lovelies. Hello. And welcome back to another show. That we do. That we do. Like this. That thing that we do. Yeah. Yeah. I hate starting and then not knowing what we're talking about. It happens all the time, doesn't it? You should record an intro. I should. Well, now that the intro is in the opening titles, we can just go straight into the show. We can. We don't need no preamble no more, quite frankly. But we still do. But we still do it, yeah. Uh, tonight is going to be back to normal, what we laughingly refer to as normal. Yeah. Covering four issues of an epic 80s Marvel miniseries that I think was pretty good. No one to bury the lead, though. Mm. So we won't tell you what Michael thinks of it. So we'll save that till later, won't we? Yeah. Because I think that's pretty awesome to save that till later. So, first of all, we've got a ton of emails, because we didn't do emails last week. So we're not going to do all of them today. What we're going to do next week is an email show, but not just an email show. Mm-hmm. No, 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 because I'm not sure what people think of email shows. Yeah. What do you think of email shows? Oh, you usually listen to podcasts, do you? They're all right. They're great for me. They're great for us, because we yeah. don't have to do any work, and that's, that'll be the second episode over summer that we could have had some time off, which is always nice. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, on the one hand, it lets you talk about things that you wouldn't perhaps normally talk about. If you're responding to an email. Yeah. But on the other, is it boring for people who don't email in to listen to an email show, I wonder? So next week, we're not just going to do an email show. We're going to do emails, because we've got a lot of them, and it's the only way we're going to get caught up. Mm -hmm. But we're also, Michael and I are going to sit down, lovely listener, by the fire. (laughs) Not that we need to at the minute, because it's nice and warm. But we're going to sit down, and we're going to tell you why this isn't comics doom and gloom. Why this may actually be comics' golden age. We're going to go through the main bods, the Marvels, the DCs and the Independents. And we're going to go through what we read and why we think they're excellent. Yeah. So that should be good, shouldn't it? Mm-hmm. So we're not just going to do an email show for people that don't like email shows. Although it's going to be very irritating for them. Because we'll do a couple of emails and then talk. Yeah. And then and do a couple of emails, emails and then talk about DC. And do a couple of emails and talk about independence. So you have to listen to the whole show. Yeah. <laughs> I is sneaky. <laughs> I am. First up tonight, the email we're going to cover tonight is the one that I did mention last week. We got an audio email from the mighty Thomas DJ. Hi, Hello, Thomas. Hello, See? It's I, Tom DJ. He replied to me. Straight out of Brooklyn here at the... Uh, we have a listener in Brooklyn. ...information mm-hmm. desk that I've set up just specifically for you in my workplace, because I'm very proud, despite what your disparag- self-disparaging comments... Andrew, I am very proud to be a part of your show as your official Daredevil corrections and information correspondent. Uh, what Thomas is referring to, though, because it's an audio feedback, we're going to listen to it and reply, because that's easier. Because that's kind of what we do with the emails, isn't it? Mm-hmm. When we did Who True Freaks together, yeah. Thomas volunteered and said, when we were doing Daredevil Yellow, let's take it right back to the beginning, rewind the whole thing. 
Daredevil Yellow, Thomas said, right, if we've got any question, let me know, because he knows about Daredevil. And so I asked him a couple of questions, which came in useful in the show. Yeah. And we're in the show, if you listen to that episode. And then on the Who True Freaks, I did say to him, serves you right for asking me that I bombarded you with questions. So he's been very kind. Yeah. That he, he didn't tell me to piss off. <laughs> After I... Like most people do. Like most people eventually do, yes. So we do thank you for that. Just finished listening to uh, Daredevil Yellow, the episode, and cannot wait for Daredevil Month, which you told me is coming, and I'm expecting a Mike Murdoch issue in amongst them, because that is one insane um, period. Uh, Stanley definitely broke his brain during that time. But anyway... Um, yes, we have. Giving the Devil is due season. It's in the book. I've even plotted out which issues. Is At the moment, book? it's four weeks, and I've got three issues per week. So giving the devil his due season is in the book. Also, it doesn't mean it'll happen because also in the book is still Spider-Man: The Original Clone Saga, which I don't know that we'll do. We may do. You never know. And a couple of other notes. Dreadful birthday, dear Joker's in there, and a couple of other things. So it is in the book, Thomas. So it has taken that next step. Yes. And I've picked issues to cover. We'll we'll see if it actually makes it to the show. Something did that has been in the news yeah, for a long time. What we're doing tonight has been in the book since we started doing the show, hasn't it? Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. I just wanted to touch on a couple of things. Uh, first off, Karen Page. Karen Page, uh, you referred to her as being very inconsequential, and I will definitely agree with you that in these early Stanley issues, even the Roy Thomas issues, she's pretty much just a kind of Betty Brand stand-in, somebody from Matt to moon over, but I can't confess my love because I am blind and the whole triangle and such, but she is kind of important off and on in the, in the series. I mean, as I said in uh, my uh, correspondence with you, that whole Karen went away to California and now is mad as sad. Went on forever, and in fact, I almost wondered if Roy Thomas was considering moving Daredevil permanently to Los Angeles, considering the way he was almost bi-coastal for about a year and a half during the 60s and 70s of the initial run. Um, then, of course, she does eventually get written out by Kerry Conway so that the hot redhead with the issues can uh, scoop up but Karen wasn't gone from the DC, from the DC, from the Marvel universe. She ends up becoming a supporting character, a fairly major supporting character in Ghost Rider's book for about roughly four years until I think it was Doug Mensch. I'm not absolutely sure. Don't quote me on it. Takes over and totally changes things around. Then she comes back, of course, with uh, Frank. Miller's uh, Born Again, although she does occasionally pop up in Daredevil, most specifically in a Daredevil Ghost Rider crossover in the 70s, half written by Marvel Men with art by John Byrne. And, uh, yeah, after the Born probably, Again, she becomes... I'll just pause, Thomas. Uh, probably the only time Marvel and John Byrne have been in a room together. Yeah. <laughs> Seems they don't really like each other very much. It's another major part of the book. She is Matt's uh, Whoopi du jour throughout all of the very controversial. Um, oh gosh, I hate, 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 
Anoshanti's run, um, because Anoshanti doesn't know how to write characters so much as likes to write political positions and throw them into characters' mouths. Although she, of course, breaks up with Matt during the whole Typhoid Mary thing, gets back together with her, breaks up with him again during T.G. Chichester's run, becomes part of a militant feminist anti-pornography group, very, very obviously based on the notorious anti-feminist pornography group, Women Against Pornography, that uh, played Times Square in the late nine, late 80s and early 90s. Uh, Do women not like porn? Apparently not. I'm, I thought there were women that liked porn as well. Hence the, the phenomenal sales of well, Fifty Shades of Dick Grayson. Isn't porn also made up of women? It's not made up of them. No, no, no. They are employed to be in the film. Certainly women in there. I'm just intrigued by this women against pornography thing. Are they speaking for all women there? I'm just intrigued because I'd never heard of this. This must this must have been a, an across the pond thing. Yeah. I don't recall if women against pornography ever made it to England. No, you were in the men for pornography. I was in the men for <laughs> pornography group. Yes. <laughs> I was in that club. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Thomas. Disappears again when D.D. Chichester does that whole bizarre Jack Batlin motocross daredevil thing. Comes back again for a while, and it's just back and forth, back and forth, until eventually, of course, uh, Kevin Smith does decide to kill her off. Okay, uh, Columbia University. Columbia University, and I used to work uh, there freelance on a couple of uh, assignments, and it's a lovely, lovely campus. It's almost like a little mini-city within the city, and... The thing is, is I don't recall either Stanley or anybody until about the 80s definitely using Columbia University as Matt's alma mater. It is used very heavily as the alma mater in the 90s, around 97, 98, when Jim Kelly takes over from the very, very well done, but very, very badly received. Um, what is his name? Uh, used to, uh, oh, it'll come to me. There was a run right after uh, D.G. Chichester and J.M. DiMatteis done by a guy who used to be an inker and his wife. Kazel, Carl Kazel, that's it, Carl Kazel. Carl, and this was great because Carl Kazel decided he didn't, he decided to make Matt smile again because after Frank Miller and and Oshenti and D.T. Chichester it was pretty much Matt is very sad all the time and has a lot of Catholic guilt <laughs> and Carl Kessel decided to make him fun again and the fans hated it I loved it but uh, Jim Ke- um, Jim, Ke- Jim Kelly Joe Kelly not Jim Kelly um, Black Belt Jones Joe Kelly decided to make Columbia University a major part of his run when he tried to position Mr. Fear as the major big bad of Daredevil. Um, what else? I think those are the only two things I wanted to bring up. Oh! Kilgrave the Purple Man, who, by the way, is my favorite Daredevil villain, precisely because of his laissez-faire kind of, well, uh, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. You know, I just love this character so much, and I think he's been kind of corrupted by the uh, increasing darkness of the Chromium Age. But uh, I love the Purple Man so much, and I don't know why he's not used more often. The funny thing is, is that I don't think initially he was using the Jedi mind trick when he gave birth to the Purple Girl. 
think it's been retconned that way that he decided he raped this girl, but I think that he actually had a relationship with the mother of the purple girl. But modern writer retcons rape. Color me shocked. Just just got bored with her and just wiped her memory. Anyway, um, I'm always at your service for Daredevil fun and games. I love talking about the character. He is one of my favorite characters of all time. And I will gladly be here as a resource for you and Michael when the time comes for Daredevil Month. And I cannot wait for that. Leland's, this has been your Daredevil correspondent, Tom DJ. Out. Thank you, Thomas. I enjoyed that because we don't get many audio feedbacks and it saves me we've already had one before and it saves me having to read the email Thomas DJ of course you must be aware of him you need to check out um, Better in the Dark that he does with his mates Derek Ferguson and DJ's Comics Cavalcade which are two podcasts that he does but also more importantly I think you need to go to welcome to nocturne.blogspot.co.uk to find out all about Thomas's new book series Welcome to Hell go and check that out we'll wait for you we'll still be here or you could listen to the end of the show mm-hmm. and then go and check that out because yeah. that would be fantastic uh, thank you very much Thomas it, it, it following on from that Bendis pretty much took over and made Daredevil all grim all of the time yeah and Purple Man all rape all of the time. All rape all of the time. And then Ed Brubacker came in and carried on with the all grim all of the time. Yeah. And then Andy Diggle came in and made it Shadowlands. And that's pretty much doing ever looked at it until Matt Wade took over, isn't it? Yeah. So there you go. Nothing changes. It was all frowns until recently. <laughs> well, even now it's quite serious. Foggy's yeah. got cancer, dude. So it's not all sunny, sunny days and happy nights or whatever. Dark days and whatever. You know what I mean. Luke Giaconetti emailed in. Hello, Luke. Oh, I love his title. I am curious yellow. No, that's not right at all. <laughs> Speaking of women against porn. Yes. I am curious yellow. Do you like porn? As a woman? I'm not against it, but I don't find it entertaining or fascinating in any way. So you're not interested in Fifty Shades of Dick Grayson? No, I haven't been, haven't read it, don't care. I'd rather watch Spartacus. There's lots of nude people in it. And plenty naked men. It, it started as, you know, blood and guts and... Yeah, the, the first episode you were like, why are you watching I, this? No, it, it was fun and entertaining, but it was camp. And then it became quite engrossing. So you're not averse to the fact that they have full frontal male nudity? No. And you're I not averse to the female? Porn. I don't watch. I don't find... Cheesy moustaches, cheesy music, and <laughs> boom, chicka, wah, wah. pizza delivery boys and plumbers. No, we've gone off on a tangent, but Thomas mentioned that there was a storyline in an old Daredevil comics that was inspired by the women against pornography movement, and I have no, I do not know what this movement is. No, I don't. But is that not what they're saying? It's degrading. I don't know because I don't know what this movement is. We were just saying that having somebody say all women are against this no. is a bit of a sweeping generalisation. No, I'm not against it. I have no problem with it. I have no interest in it. Right. Okay, well, I just thought we would ask a woman's opinion on something that has nothing to do with comic books. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Got a response. And then, and once again, comics. we started an email and interrupted it yeah. to talk about porn. Because you're boys. But we did it in a very family-friendly way. Yes. At no point did we say... Email starts, hello seekers of blind justice, hello Luke. 
Always nice to hear from Luke. Mm-hmm. And we do every week. Yeah. Well, not every week. He didn't email him from Metal Gear Solid. No. He had nothing to say about Metal Gear Solid. He looked at it and thought, I'll still stay clear for <laughs> weeks. I don't blame Maybe he was just busy yeah. with the baby and so. As I have said multiple times on the show before, Daredevil is a character whom I have never gotten into. I've tried at various points, but have never warmed to the man without fear. I enjoyed listening to your fellow's take on Yellow, because this series seems to have embraced the elements of Dee Dee which make him unique, rather than focusing on those which make him similar to others. He's neither light and bouncy like Spider-Man, nor grim and brooding like Batman. Yellow portrays Daredevil as being somewhere in the middle, which makes sense for a character as closely associated with the law and justice as Dee Dee. At the very least, Yellow sounds like the kind of story I would like without getting bogged down in too much doom and gloom like most DD stories seem to do. The semi-hard-boiled crime elements also remind me of other Marvel comics I enjoy, namely the original Bronze Age Luke Cage solo book, so I will be sure to check this series out at some point when I have time to find a copy of it. I appreciate you guys talking about all these lobe sale books and very much look forward to hearing about Hulk Grey in the future. Keep up the good work, Luke. P.S. The name of the shyster attorney on The Simpsons is Lionel Hutz, who was played by the late Phil Hartman. The character was retired from the show upon Hartman's death. Of course he was. Mm. P.P.S. I loved the use of the Rocky soundtrack on this episode. Perfect choice. Thank you very much. There was no other choice for that episode. No. A lot of the times when you're editing the show, you're always, well, what music will suit this? What music suits the mood of what we're saying? You yeah. don't want... Um, music in the background when you're, you're talking about death and destruction. But I guess so, but it certainly makes an interesting... Uh, <laughs> an interesting contrast. So, uh, yeah, so uh, we appreciate that. Uh, final email tonight is Jay Ferguson. Go Hellblazers finale one and two. So this is going back a bit. Indeed. Hey, Leylands. Hello, Jay. Nice to hear from you again. Sorry about being so far in between missives as this is truly going to be confusing for both you guys and for me, since I am listening to the end of part two at the moment and listened to part one about the time it came out and wrote down some notes and started to write a letter but got distracted. So some of these notes I wrote make no bloody sense, so I'll ditch some of the stuff that no longer understand what I was talking about. I have no idea what giraffe bread is. I have no idea what giraffe bread is either. Sounds awesome, though. When did we talk about giraffe bread? I don't know. I don't know either. Anyway, maybe Jake can enlighten them. Yes. We've got a gift from Christmas from our friends who are living in Malaysia at the moment. They're kind of like Twinkies, the banana flavoured with caramel and a bit banana shape with a giraffe pattern on the outside. They are delicious. What is a giraffe bread then? Alright, so he doesn't throw any light upon the I subject of what giraffe bread know, is. I really want some of that giraffe bread now. I don't remember us talking about giraffe bread. No. Unless it was cottony rhyming slang for something. I don't remember. Apparently you said something about Michael Turner. I don't remember whether it was positive or negative, but I will go on record that I find his work, well, icky. Anorexia and Rufflion work don't do much for me. I like Michael Turner's work. I think he draws too much in the way of the elongated torso. Yeah. And his women were all a bit skinny for me, but maybe that was his taste in women. Could have been. You know. We don't like to speak ill of him because he is now no longer with us. Yeah. But for the most part, I quite like Michael Turner's work. Your missus, mum, depending on which host, is like most folks have said, well, good. She should be on more. She has a nice voice and has good things to say. I like the bit where she was talking about going around with Andrew and seeing bands in skinky, skeevy punk clubs. <laughs> as it reminds me of going around the various clubs in Seattle as a middle and high schooler with my dad and by myself, sometimes with my friend Christina, who was actually a part of one of the jokes in the Jason Aaron Hellblazer issue about the rotating bass players. players sorry. As I got to see her play as the last of several bass players in the amazing Seattle band Vis Queen. Vi Queen? 
perhaps I'm pronouncing that wrong, whilst I was in college in Minneapolis, where I did go to a few shows, though not as many as I would have liked, being poor. And these days I still get around to some of the clubs in Seattle, but and they are still a lot of fun. Especially when I go and see Christina do her solo stuff, and sometimes I hang with her mum, who is a whole lot of fun. But we may have got off the beaten path there, but Seattle, Seattle punk clubs sound fun. Mm-hmm. Should we go? Okay. Find me a plane. A Let's go now. I don't think a bus would work somehow, to be honest with you. I like how Spider-Man is at the moment, but I love well-written Spider-Marriage. That's what makes me love Straczynski's run so much, because I think no matter what you feel about the totem stuff and things of that nature, it is some well-written relationship drama. Don't know where that came from, but I assume that was something we were talking about. Also, I remembered you slagging off Miller's Marvel Knights Spider-Man, and honestly, that's my favourite Miller story, and I wondered what your huge problems were with it. Uh, My huge problems were with it that it was Mark Miller. No, that's pithy. I'm better than that. Um, my problem with it was I I didn't dislike Miller's work up till that point. And I think it was the Spider-Man run where I started to notice his little twick ticks yeah. and quirks. It was that his Norman Osborn spoke with that exact same snarky superior attitude that his Lex Luthor spoke with. And he's carried that over into his other work. Like Michael just said, his nemesis. Nemesis, The central character in Nemesis spoke with the same voice. Now this wouldn't necessarily have been a problem for me because Lex Luthor's DC and Norman Osborn's Marvel and Nemesis is a different... So it's different characters and different stories. But Peter Parker spoke with that same voice. Yeah. So then you've got two characters in the story, Peter Parker and Norman Osborn, both speaking with the same snarky, superior one-upmanship in getting out pithy one-line as dialogue. And at some point, that stops becoming dialogue and just becomes pithy one-liners. Yeah. And it was at that point, I think, I think I need to walk away from Mark Miller at this point because his work is just starting to seem very samey to me. And I've not read anything since then that's made me change my mind. Even the stuff of his I've liked, like Old Man Logan. Yeah. It's still in that one, isn't it? Logan, who's, or is it... Who's he with in that one? Who's his partner? Is it Hawkeye? Hawkeye. It's Hawkeye, the snarky, pithy one. Yeah. With the smart-ass one-liner for every occasion. So even there, he's just done exactly the same thing. So it wasn't so much that I had a problem with the stories per se when I was reading them. It's as I was reading them, I was like, this seems very samey. And I just kind of went away. I also got fed up with him just coming in, kicking over all the tables and leaving. Yeah. He never came in and did a good long run. It was always a short story. It was always, I'll come in, I'll write a trade paperback, I'll go. Yeah. And it's, I just got fed up with that. He stayed on for authority and everyone wished he didn't. Did he? Because... I've only read his first authority story. I've read a lot of stuff where, because he was having a long run on it, it started getting to the point where the editors had to tone him down and they had to kick him off the book. Mark Miller needs toning down. Yeah. I am shocked by that. Mm. Anyway, so that's my problem. I mean, the art was good. The art was done Frank Cho and the Dodsons, wasn't it? Uh, Yeah. In that Spider-Man arc. So the art was nice. Vertigo fans got shafted with the end of Hellblazer, continues Jay, but it's nothing new. Exterminators was a great Vertigo book that got axed, and between the beginning and end of this email we lost Paul Cornell, Ryan Kelly's book, Saucer Country from Vertigo, which is one of my favourite books Vertigo has ever done. At least John got a good run out of it. But Hellblazer was Vertigo, though. Do you think? Yeah. As its longest running title, did it become its flagship title? Yeah. By definition. Mm. Even though Sandman is probably the poster child for Vertigo. Didn't run for the entirety of it, though. No, that's true. And let's face it, Vertigo is really over. 
they seem to be churning out a new era yeah. of different titles. They've but got Scott Snyder's The Wake. Yeah. And that's what I've seen. There's a couple they seem to be. It's not v- Vertigo, though. Is it not? It's let's do creator-owned titles, but with our DC stuff. So, because I haven't read The Wake yet. I've got three issues of it that I need to get to read. Yeah. To decide whether I'm going to carry on buying it for a start. It's only six issues. So it's 12, I think. Oh, is it? Something like that, yeah. I think you may have suggested at some point that I didn't like Alan Moore. And that's kind of true in that I think he's a vicious git that uses influence in the comics community as a club to beat people with. But I love his Swamp Thing, which I would say is head and shoulders above a lot of the more well-regarded work. Apparently you also talked about Peter Pan getting sodomised in Lost Girls and that didn't happen. The Alice sequences are actually really disturbing to me, anyway, involving a lot of people being taken advantage of under the influence of drugs. Still, it does have gorgeous art, and I think as a story it holds together stronger than any of his other literary character-based stories, despite the constant explicit sex. Interestingly enough, that came up at a a conversation at a recent meeting by Dungeons & Dragons group. Curry's Hellblazer is probably my favourite run of Hellblazer after Garth Ennis, and the issue you two covered is the beginning of what I'd call the true sequel to Dangerous Habits, where Nurgle really gets some of his own back for John's beatdown of him in that story. Curry's run is really dark, story and art-wise, but I love it. I love Dave McKean's art, which I assume I wrote a note about because you talked about it in relation to Gaiman's Hellblazer issue. The first work together for DC, the Black Orchid prestige format three-issue miniseries, had a lot of ties to more Swamp Thing and has beautiful watercolour art. It's one of my favourite stories of all time. I had to buy the issues twice as I lent them to my sister and she lost them. Bloody sisters. <laughs> there was a recent hardcover reprint of it too. Highly recommended. It's very good. We don't have Black Orchid. The, the new reprint of it. Oh, right. I don't think I've ever read Black Orchid. Me neither, but... I may have done. The new hardcover is very tempting. I've read the books of Magic. Yeah. That's that's not Dave McKean, though, is it? No, it's a different artist every time. Right. Okay. Gaiman also did a story in Batman Black and White with Bisley that is well good. Again, no idea where that came from, but a great story. We do know what pissed means over here and what it means over there. At least I do. I love the name drop of X-Ray Specs because they're my favourite punk band of the first wave of punk. Not only because I love them, but because they are the inspiration for the Riot Girl movement that brought some of my favourite bands like Sleater Kinney and Bikini Kill. But again, that was diversion. I, I liked Sleater Kinney. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of Sleater Kinney albums. You know, when we were punk and young and ruthless. Oh, yeah. And now you're, you're, you're cutting edge. Yeah. Not us. Don't know about Anarchy in the UK being the best punk song, though it is definitely the best Sex Pistols song. Oh, no. Pretty Vacant is the best Sex Pistols song. I really, really can't stand the Pistols, because while they may have started things, they seem the modern Mark Miller of punk rock. (laughs) When you're dropping references to concentration camps in your songs, it's just for shock value, and it's not funny or interesting. Bands like X-Ray Specs, The Clash and The Buzzcocks seemed a lot more enjoyable and actually had things to say. But I know that may not be a super popular opinion, and again, I'm digressing. No, I think that's a valid point, Mm. to be honest with you. I like The Buzzcocks, because it always reminds me of this bit in the Joy Division movie, Control. It's (laughs) like, why would you... Cocks? Why would you call yourself cocks? But they're not. <laughs> Didn't you watch that on a plane? No, I watched it. Oh, right, okay. I guess now I'm an associate member of the Two True Freaks due to my co-hosting duties on just one of them the guys. Perhaps Sean Engel's only bad idea. It is nice to be even the new fish of such an August fraternity of yours, and I hope I do the Demanza Court family proud, if such a thing is possible, and that Demanza Court family is perhaps only a few steps up from the family from the Hills of Ice. <laughs> Oh, you've met Signor Di Panzo, have you? 
Keep a watch out as I am marathoning the programme at the moment and you may find a whole bunch of letters in a chunk, as seems to be the case, unless I get distracted again. And since there will be time for reading and writing over the next few weeks, there will probably be a ton of them. So feel free to spread them out should you find yourself swamped by email from me. Cheers, Jay Ferguson. And we're going to do just that. Because we do have another email from Jay. In fact, we have another email from lots of people. Yes. Because the email this week was very, very busy. But we're going to move on this week to the Wolverine. And we'll cover all the emails next time. So we're going to take a break and refuel our throat with liquid. Speaking of par. Yeah. And um, we'll be right back. Yeah. Quick advert. Somebody show. Yeah. Sure it's very good. Hey, everybody. I'm Paul Spataro. I don't know if you know me, but I'm a regular on Back to the Bins, along with my friends, Dr. Bill Robinson. Hello. And Mr. Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? Andy's been asking us for a promo for the show for the longest time, and Bill has been writing it for the longest time. Bill, you got that promo written yet? Uh... Okay, so, anyway, what we do is we review three comic books... We try to do it every week. Usually it's a Marvel, a DC, and a Captain Canuck book for Scott. So, tune in every week to Back to the Bins to listen to our show. You can find us at 2TrueFreaks.com. Drinks provided. Mm -hmm. Biscuits being eaten. Yep. And we're back. Every comics fan has an X-Men phase. This can be the Claremont Vern Austin stuff, Neil Adams, the 90s cartoon, maybe even Executioner's Song, or Fall of the Mutants. My X-Men phase is all over the place. As mentioned in the Days of Future Past episodes, this was one of my first X-Men stories published in Mighty World of Marvel Volume 2, Issue 1, in 1983. But as this was Marvel UK, it was possible to experience Marvel's Merry Mutants in various different times and configurations. It was quite easy to pick up back issues of Marvel Superheroes, a monthly black-and-white reprint magazine that had more of the Clermont Burn stuff. At that time, Marvel were also publishing black-and-white pocketbooks, again, easy to pick up in second-hand bookstores and at church sales and markets, publishing the Stan Lee Jack Kirby material first in Star Heroes, and then with issue 12, X-Men Pocketbook. I had a UK annual that reprinted three of the Neil Adams issues. I was also trying to pick up the US issues as I could, the first I managed to pick up being a Paul Smith issue, 172, in which Wolverine was scheduled to be married. I stuck around past Rita Jr., but started losing interest in the book after he left, rarely picking up the series again, even to this day, although I am tempted to buy the essentials to see where Clermont took the characters in their 90s heyday. What's your X-Men phase, Michael? Um... I read the Clermont Burn stuff. Doesn't everybody? Years ago, in the pocketbooks. And then Whedon's Astonishing X-Men. My, that's a big gap. Yeah. And then Morrison's run. And that's about it. They're your X-Men. Yeah. Well, that's what I like about the X-Men. You can have your era of X-Men. And it does seem to be there are hardcore X-Fans. Like I'm your hardcore Spider-Man and people hardcore Superman. But it does seem there are people who have gone in, this was my X-Men, and then got out. Yeah. And so they have these fond memories of this X-Men era. Well, we've tried different stuff, like Messiah Complex. It was awful, era. wasn't it? Yeah. I thought that Messiah Complex was dreadful. I tried all new X-Men, the new Bendis one. Yeah. I read the first four or five. And it's an interesting idea. But not all that great. But it didn't keep me engaged. When we did Avengers vs. X-Men, I read... 
everything all the times, and the Avengers books were better than the X Men books. Right. Which is a shame because the X Men have so much potential. However, the series we're covering tonight isn't the X Men, but it was special. Created by Len Wein, John Romita, and Roy Thomas, the Wolverine had emerged as the breakout star of the all-new X-Men. He was diminutive, no more than five foot three inches tall, gruff, cocky, and had a temper. He was also hurry and unkempt, although he could pull out the sartorial style when the occasion called for it. He was a born scrapper, blessed with a mutant healing power that could enable him to recover from most, but crucially not all, injuries and diseases, and had at some point had his skeleton laced with adamantium, the strongest metal known to man in the Marvel Universe anyway, and was bestowed with claws, three on each arm, that could be deployed and retracted when needed. He was the ultimate weapon. He was also not popular with the writer or artist. Chris Claremont and Dave Cochran much preferred the character of Nightcrawler, and, first chance they got, this Wolverine character was gone. Was it not Herb Trim? No, Dave Cochran. Are you sure it can Hulk? Herb Trim didn't create Wolverine, though. Okay. It's like The Punisher. The Punisher was created by Jerry Conway and John Romita Sr., but Ross Andrew drew his first appearance. Right. But Romita designed the look of the character, and it's the same with Wolverine. Right. Herb Trimpe, or Herb Trimpe, however you pronounce it, drew his first appearance, but from my understanding, Romita designed it. Right. So, that's my understanding anyway. Enter John Byrne. Cochrane left the X-Men before the plan to eliminate Wolverine could take place, and Byrne and Terry Austin took over as the art team. Byrne, a UK-born, Canadian-raised artist, flatly refused to write the one Canadian team member out of the book, and, it is said, took it upon himself to prove to Clermont that Wolverine could be a viable character. From the late 70s, when Byrne took over the book, through to the early 80s, when artist Paul Smith's clean style and Clermont's dense prose was taking the book through higher sales and more critical acclaim, Wolverine emerged as arguably THE X-Man character, and in the early 80s he was rewarded with his own limited series. This approach, building the character slowly before rewarding him with a four-issue tryout, seems, in marked contrast to how Marvel would exploit and expand the X-Man franchise in the late 80s and into the 90s, and beyond. But in this era of only one X-Men title, this approach was groundbreaking in its simplicity and execution. Even today, it's impossible to think of doing an X-Men project that doesn't have Wolverine in it, be it comics or film, and sometimes it seems like Marvel is incapable of doing any project, X-Men related or not, that doesn't have a Wolverine appearance in there somewhere. One of the primary draws of Wolverine was he often alluded to murky past. Whilst this was shrouded in mystery and arguably one of the primary reasons for the character's popularity, there was a background worked out by the creators in place for the character. Never designed to be published, this backstory was simply that. Backstory. Hinted at but never revealed, allowing the writers to craft story after story about the man with the claws, although they did eventually reveal his name, Logan. One such story, the Wolverine miniseries from 1982, is one of the best. I distinctly remember buying this. In the early to mid-1980s, I had started squirrelling away my pocket money and dinner money to buy comics, and had also started to attend the comic shows in Manchester every other month located at Piccadilly Gardens. This particular trip, must have been about 83, 84, I spotted a complete set of Wolverine miniseries for £5 for the entire set. This was a huge amount of money! 
Comics were 25p to 30p each, so this entire miniseries could have been bought for a quid had it ever showed up in UK newsagents, which it probably didn't, because miniseries and specials really did, especially from Marvel. I may have only had a fiver to spend. Nevertheless, after trawling the show a few times, I made the purchase. Written by Chris Clermont, with art by Frank Miller and inks by Joe Rubenstein, the series was lettered by Tom Ositowski and coloured by Glynis Ween and Lynn Varley. The cover has become iconic. We seem to be saying that a lot recently, don't we? Yeah. Wolverine, in the light and dark brown costume but not wearing his mask, looks straight at the reader smiling whilst one finger beckons. His right hand shows his popped claws shining in the light. The implication is clear. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. All four issues came out across summer of 1982 and are cover dated September through December 1982. Had you ever read this before? Yes. Oh, had you? Once, a while ago. When you were making me read the Claremont and Burn stuff, you made me read this as well. I made you. I sat with a gun at you (laughs) and said, you will read this. And you'll enjoy it too. Damn it. Okay, fair enough. The story for part one goes thus. Wolverine is in the Canadian Rockies. A bear has been shot with a poisoned arrow and, enraged, has murdered seven women, five men and three children. Wolverine first stops its murderous rampage and then takes on the man responsible for poisoning the bear. Wolverine then continues his journey to Tokyo, where he hopes to learn why his lady love, Mariko Yoshida, is suddenly ignoring his calls. Upon arrival, he is stunned to learn from his old government buddy, Asano Kimura, that Mariko is married, part of an honour-led deal made with her father. Wolverine needs to see her, and Asano informs him that should he continue on this path, Asano himself may be required to hunt Wolverine down. Wolverine informs him he's welcome to try. That night, Wolverine breaks into the ancestral home of the clan Yashida and speaks to Mariko. She says she is married, and what they have can be no more. Wolverine refuses to accept this, and after stepping closer, sees Mariko has been beaten. The berserker rage consuming him, Wolverine realises Mariko's husband is responsible, and wouldn't you know it, he chooses to enter at this precise moment. Wolverine, unsheathing his claws, proposed to gut Noboru Hidikai, but Mariko talks him down. Wolverine, disgusted, proposed to leave, but is attacked by poisoned shuriken. He awakens in the dojo under the watchful eyes of Noboru, a few sumo bodyguards, and Lord Shingen, Mariko's father. He challenges Wolverine to prove his love for Mariko in combat, and with Bokan, wooden practice swords, claiming Wolverine to not be worthy of a real sword. With Wolverine still woozy from the drug, Lord Shingen easily takes first blood, and Wolverine pops his claws, but in doing so, dishonours himself in Mariko's eyes, turning, as he does, friendly combat into the real thing when he appears to be losing. Lord Shingen easily bests Wolverine, and he again awakens, this time in an alley in Tokyo where muggers accost him. He prepares to fight again, but the muggers all die, quickly and efficiently, at the hands of Yukio, a female ninja warrior. Good first issue, this. Mm-hmm. Or I thought it was. I'm sure you'll have something to say later. No. Um, I'm Wolverine, begins the issue. The best there is at what I do. But what I do best isn't very nice. Oft parodied, yes. Mm. But has there ever been a better opening line to a comic book that summed up the character so well? No. It's great. It's absolutely fantastic. We're in this now, though. Go on. And you just sat there go, oh, of course, he's the best, yeah, the best of what he does, yeah. Yeah, well, see, you've got to put yourself into the context, this is the first time it was done. Yeah. This, the, the, I'm the best there is at what I do, 
but what I do best isn't very nice had never been done before mm. did Clermont go on to overuse it oh definitely yeah but this was the first time a lot of the dialogue in this seems to be very miller well I've got a few notes about that I did think this must have been tailored for the artist yeah because there's a lot of stuff in this that is very miller orientated it's a different miller as well I like this well, that may, become that, that may be the Inca. Yeah. That may be Joseph Rubinstein. Because um, a lot of people have said that the final issue of Daredevil doesn't look very Miller. But that's because Terry Austin inked it yeah. instead of Klaus Janssen. So maybe what they were used to was Klaus Janssen inking Frank Miller rather than Frank Miller himself. Right. But that's, that's just a guess. I don't know. Um, it's a great splash page. Miller gives Logan Crowe's feet and laughter lines, implying this is a man who's lived... So he's not just a little pretty boy. One of the things I've, I've liked about Hugh Jackman is he doesn't seem to have had any Botox or facelifts or anything. Yeah. So his face does look lived in. I mean, give him ten years, there's still time. Because <laughs> Famke Jansen looks like she's had work. Mm. But I, I thought it was an excellent splash page. You turn over to page two, it's a great shot of Wolverine climbing the cliff. Unaided. Yeah. So he's not got any sticks or anything. So whether he's using his claws to stick him in the cliff... Is something we don't know. But we see something, it looks like something falls off Wolverine's backpack as he ascends the cliff face. And we'll never know, because it's never referred to in the narrative, is it? He's wearing a backpack. He's wearing, no, you're right, he's not wearing a backpack. Yeah, I think it looks like a rock falling. It could be, when he's kicked a rock off as he's climbing up. Yeah. That's possible. See, I read it as something's fallen off Wolverine, his backpack or his pocket or whatever. But yeah, you're right, it could be. I, I thought it was a bit odd, there's only one rock though. Could yeah. have been a bit of rock. Maybe it was his uh, last cigar. It could have been, but he, he gets one back. That's, that's why he stabs the burst so much, he's annoyed he lost his last <laughs> He's going into nicotine withdrawal, <laughs> and his healing factor's not kicked in. Yeah, that seems to make perfect sense. Um, speaking of narrative, I think this is the first time Clermont used first-person narrative caption boxes, a storytelling device used extensively by Miller in his Daredevil run, and in common usage today, although it's still quite rare when this book was published. Jeff Loeb does this an awful lot, mm. doesn't he? First-person narration, as you've seen if you've listened to us talk about um, yellow or blue. Um, there's been a number of different reviews and other material that I looked up after rereading this for the show that says that Clermont's style is stilted and dated. And whilst it's true that the constant repetition of Wolverine's abilities and power set, normally at the beginning of each chapter, gets a bit tiresome, when you read this as a, a gestalt one has to remember comics were not written for the aftermarket in 1982 so Clermont has to bring people up to speed with each issue and I think he does it very well in fact if we as fans weren't so anal about editing material when it was reprinted each issue in this series could lose the expository captions quite easily and the story would probably flow better yeah. as a continuous graphic novel the fact that it flows this well at all is a testament to Clermont's skill in fact, the highest compliment I can pay any comic is that you can read it aloud without it sounding ridiculous. And this works perfectly mm. if you read it aloud, which I did. Did you? I read pretty much this entire four-issue miniseries aloud. Fair. Because the dialogue's just great. It's absolutely fantastic. This is home to me. The Canadian Rockies. Land as stark and elemental as my soul. I'm here on business. To hunt. To kill. Like I said what I do best. It's great. And the narration captions all the way through are never irritating or they're never telling you what you're looking at. 
Yeah. They're all there to further That's the story. Because doesn't like to write what the picture's telling us. Good. <laughs> I hate that. I hate though in the caption box and they're telling us what we're seeing in the picture. It's mm. what the picture's for. That was just making a joke about the whole disagreement with Burn. Oh right, well <laughs> that we covered last week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's he's drawn him here having an easy time of it. I will change that. That seems fair enough. Um I mean, we've just discovered this story seems perfectly tailored to Frank Miller's strengths and his pet themes. It's Japan, and he's into ninjas and yeah. Gaijin and Ronin, isn't he? Because he did a DC miniseries called Ronin. I, I did wonder, while I was reading this, what this would have looked like if Bernard Austin had drawn it. Yeah. Would it have been any better? or It would have been different. And I, I, I don't know if I, I came to any conclusion. I don't know. Maybe it is just a Miller story. It does seem tailored for Frank Miller's strengths as an artist. The scene with the grizzly bear, where Wolverine's attacking the grizzly bear, he cuts his arm off. Uh, as a kid, I remember being quite shocked by the violence of Wolverine cutting the bear's arm off on page four. But didn't mind it when Luke did it to the But that, that's what I'm saying. I mean, compared to today's comics, it's quite tame. I remember this being a lot more graphic. But it, it, like you say, it's no more graphic than Empire Strikes Back, really, is it? Mm. I do think it's quite funny, though, when uh, you think that Wolverine is in Canada. So, of course, he's fighting a grizzly bear. Of course he is. Yeah. What else do you do in Canada? <laughs> so, he goes to Japan, fights a couple of samurai. Yeah. That's what's in Japan. That's going to Canada and fight Japan. a grizzly bear. So, that's it. <laughs> what else is there to do in Canada? Go to Russia, Logan's at home, everyone's drunk. Vodka, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Logan. I don't know what accent that was, but it was, it was in Russia. Um... There's an art error. Did you notice this? Uh, no. The the dialogue clearly makes reference to an arrow being in the bear's back, yeah. shot by a curless hunter. There is no arrow in the bear's back in any of the artwork. John Burns reading this, laughing. Another poor fool. <laughs> <laughs> Your art is poor, Frank Miller. You are a pitiful artist. He has changed the story on someone else now. <laughs> I did think that was a bit odd. That you you don't it would because it would have been quite easy to to see an arrow line yeah to just have a line there sticking out of his back. The opening scene is actually despite this despite this error that ruined the story for me complete all four completely altered <laughs> shut it shut the comic can't move on. Despite, next week next time um despite this this opening scene is wonderful. The first person narration prevents Wolverine from speaking to himself. A trope of comics that only ever really works when Spider-Man does it, because, well, Spider-Man would totally talk to himself. Yeah. Wolverine's cunning in hunting and his respect for the bird is always apparent, as is his contempt for the man that did this. Especially powerful, we never actually see what Wolverine does to the man. Only that the bird lasted longer, but he lets the man live. Yeah. And we don't see what he does to him. All we see is he, he glasses Logan... Yeah, he breaks a bar, um, he breaks a pint glass in Logan's glass face, just hovering on that one panel. Well, maybe they couldn't show that, and knocks him out, and knocks him down. And we'll, the last we see is Wolverine just getting back up, saying, "I was hoping you'd try something like that," which was great. Do you feel lucky, punk? Yeah, he is very Clint Eastwood. Yeah, in this story. Uh, Mariko Yoshida first appeared in Uncanny X Men one hundred eighteen when the X-Men were in Japan. She and Logan immediately struck up a relationship, and in true soap opera Marvel comic style, the course of true love never ran smoothly. 
There is some wonderful brevity of storytelling over pages 7 through 8. In the space of a panel, Wolverine has returned from Canada to New York, picked up his mail, learns that Mariko never received his letters, and he's on a plane to New York. On the next page, but in but a few words, we learn that Asano Kimura was a buddy Logan worked with on Black Ops during his time in the Canadian Secret Service. It's hard to believe now that they would get all that much into three panels. Yeah. He's gone home from Canada, he's gone to New York, he's picked up his mail, he's spoke to Japan, he's gone and got on a plane. That would be an entire issue Oh yeah. nowadays, wouldn't it? And then the plane trip would be another issue. Yeah. Whereas here, three panels, bam, we're in Japan. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Great body language from Frank Miller on page eight as well, when Asano tells Logan about Mariko's marriage. He goes from stunned to clenched fist in the pace of two panels, which I thought was a great piece of work. I really like Miller's work in this. I thought Miller's work in this series was really good. Again, there's some excellent dialogue. Asano tells Logan his presence is making people nervous, to which Logan just replies, tough. Asano also calls Logan more Japanese than any Westerner I have ever known. (laughs) Did you like that? And encourages Logan to leave well enough alone as it's a matter of giri, duty and obligation. Mm -hmm. I'm always scared about doing Japanese accents. Yeah. Because, like, no one says anything when I do Cockney, badly, or Irish, badly, or Scottish, exceptionally well. Yeah. But you always think, if you do a Japanese accent, are you now being borderline racist? And there's a part of it that's like, no, because if he'd have been a southerner, I'd have done it with a southern American accent. Yeah. And that wouldn't be racist either. That would be... Because when I read this aloud, I did the accents, dude. Do you, do you believe that? I, I do, yeah. <laughs> I totally did. So, we speak of Giri Logan, of obligation and duty and honour. To deny her would mean denying her essential self. She would rather die. I totally, uh-huh. I totally, no, I did not do the speed racer. <laughs> I totally read this with accents. Um, this predates the Lethal Weapon movies by a number of years, so Wolverine's reticence in killing animals but not humans may have been an influence on Martin Riggs. Again, the dialogue's just great here. The Yoshida Ancestral Stronghold stands in the hills overlooking the port city of Al. I can't bloody say that word! Agarashima, in Miyago Prefecture, roughly 300 clicks up the road from Tokyo. I'm there by midnight. The dogs are new. They don't know my scent. They're killers, but so am I. We lock eyes and wills, communicating on levels far more comprehensive than subtle than speech. They're mean, but they ain't stupid. They let me pass. I'm glad. I ain't got no stomach for gutting animals. People, though, that's another matter. <laughs> I don't get that. He won't kill animals, but he's got no problem killing all these people. Yeah. People know what they're doing, is the point animals that he's making. Animals know what they're doing. Animals work on a purely instinctive level most of the time. They still know what they're doing. Well, yes, but instinctively. And there's very little But people are enough instincts as well. He wouldn't have killed that birther if he hadn't have had to. And it was the man who caused the bird's actions. It was the man not understanding nature that caused the bird to kill all those people. Right, so those wolves, though... Yes. Okay, they go to attack... Wolverine, he mm. wouldn't kill them because they don't know what they're doing. No, no, had they attacked him, he would have killed them. That's what he's saying in the dialogue. Yeah. In the narration boxes, sorry, not the dialogue. Had they attacked, he would have killed them. Yes, but, okay, so they... He didn't want to, though. No. But if they were guards who were working off instinct mm-hmm. and attacked them, he wanted to kill them. No, he doesn't. 
Right. He only uses deadly force in this story when he absolutely has to. Much later on, when he's attacked by the hand, he doesn't kill them. Right. Because he doesn't have to kill them. He takes them all out without killing them. So Wolverine in this machine isn't just a murdering rampage monster. When the berserker rages on him, and he doesn't know what he's doing, he'll kill everything in sight. But the whole point of this story, the whole story arc that Wolverine goes through... Is that he tries not to kill. ...is him realising, yes, I am a killer, but I'm not going to kill today. And that's his story arc, isn't it? Yeah. It's his realisation that he's not a beast, he's a man, and he has that choice. And that story lasts for as long as Clermont's on the book. Probably, and then he just goes back to gutting people. I don't know, I've not read enough modern-day X-Men or modern-day Wolverine, for that matter, yeah. to be able to comment on Ripped that. in half. Okie dokie. Yeah, I hate all of that. I think that's awful. The fact that he's mutant healing factor now, yeah. you can turn him in half and he can regenerate. Well, there's, a, there's a few things stupid. in this which I like. He gets tranquilised Yeah. And He's we'll, almost dead. We'll mention a lot of that as we go through the story, but there's a lot of stuff in this where his healing factor is just that. Yeah. It's not a cure-all. If you cut Wolverine's head off, he wouldn't be coming back from that. Well, if you could cut through his adamantium skeleton. All right, if you scooped his brain out somehow, he wouldn't be coming back from through that. Through his adamantium. If you went through his stomach and ripped his heart out, right, <laughs> he wouldn't be coming back from that. Is that better? Are you happy with that? Plausible, yeah. Okay. Um, Logan meets Mariko and calls her Mariko-chan, a term of endearment in Japanese that implies familiarity, especially when used in conjunction with the first name. Technically, Logan and Mariko are very close, maybe even lovers, so Logan should have dropped the honorific by now, and he should just be calling her Mariko. Maybe it's respect. Well, there's different levels of it, isn't there? There's Mariko, Mariko-san, yeah, and then Mariko-chan, and then the ultimate level of closeness is just calling them by the name so technically he shouldn't have called them but he could chant they should be past all that by now mm. but we'll let that go uh, Logan is in very very angry at seeing that Miriko has been beaten and his later realisation that it's at the hands of Noboru Hidekai or Hidekai her husband is palpable excellent job here by Miller and Joe Rubenstein and uh, Noboru starts the issue as he means to go on. He's a wife-beating coward, isn't he? Mm-hmm. You will learn your proper place. And then Wolfrey just picks him up by the throat. And he's gonna, he's, he'll gut him. Oh, yeah. He'll have no problem gutting him. A lovely use of swords at the beginning of the story, given how they play into the conclusion. Not heavy-handed or lit with a neon sign that says this is important, rather a subtle and elegant inclusion into the narrative where Mariko explains the swords were created by Masumune, um, a tradition of duty and honour and of being in the family for many years. Nice touch, Masumune swords are real, and Masumune is one of Japan's greatest swordsmiths. Mm. So I did like that, that little explanation there of the swords. That's the end of issue four. Yeah. Perfectly structured. Mm-hmm. Excellent little comic book, this. Misuse of the angle brackets. I've tossed this comic <laughs> aside. This mistake means I can tolerate it no more. No, I'm being silly. Normally, your angle brackets are used to signify translated from yeah. another language in comics. The word hi is Japanese and therefore wouldn't be translated anywhere. So it shouldn't have the angle brackets around it. Is that the most nitpicky I've ever got? It's the... It's up there, yeah. is it? <laughs> we should have brought continuity and nitpicks back just for that. 
just for that one moment. Comics continuity. Yeah, comics continuity. I'm oh, just lettering mistake. <laughs> Although I think pointing out that Sentinel was misspelt on one page in Day of Future Past, that's very nitpicky. Oh, yeah. The, the, the both of them. The both. When, when the show ends and we go back there and do a retrospective, we'll do the most nitpicky things Andrew picked up. Oh, what we'll do is like in Top Gear, where they have the, the <laughs> <Yeah>. speed chart. <laughs> we'll have a chart of the top nitpicky things yeah. Andrew picked on during the run of the show. <laughs> uh, Logan, absolutely disgusted with Noboru, but unable to deny Mariko, leaves and would have got on a plane here and gone home. Yeah. So one can argue that if Lord Shingen had left well enough alone, he could have got on with his plans unmolested. But he doesn't. Nope. So it, this is entirely his fault. Yeah. Logan was leaving. Logan was getting the hell out of Dodge, wasn't he? Uh, more real Japanese in the final pages of the boot. Lord Shingen's first words are actually given in Japanese and translated to English, plus use of the term geijin, which in this context is meant as an insult, meaning foreigner or outsider. Uh, the five-page fight scene that concludes the issue is kinetic, violent, and masterfully choreographed by Miller. Lord Shingen owns Wolverine, even with a bouquet, a wooden practice sword, easily outclassing him, largely due to the poison in Logan's bloodstream, but still. Logan also plays into his plan magnificently, unsheathing his claws and dishonouring himself in the process. Logan says Shingen follows with a suki strike to the throat, but this seems to actually be a karate move, rather than a swordsman's move. But I could be wrong. Yeah. You know. A suki strike is normally a karate chop, whereas Lord Shingen does it here with a sword. I suppose the principle's the same thing, isn't it? karate chopping. It's still a chop to the neck. Yeah. So I I presume that's what they meant. Um, Excellent first issue. Absolutely fantastic first issue. Fleshing out Logan as a character, whilst telling us very little about his backstory. We don't really learn anything about Logan in this story other than he was in the Canadian Secret Service and he knows some Japanese. Yeah. But his knowledge of Japanese culture and the Japanese setting all adds to this tale of honour and intrigue. At the minute, we've got this in the hardcover graphic novel from the Ultimate Graphic Novels collection that gets released in England every two weeks. But I do have the four original issues. There were no interesting adverts. Were there not? No, apart from an advert for the Teen Titans... X-Men crossover by Chris Claremont and Walt Simonson and Terry Austin. Yeah. Nothing very interesting at all. I was very disappointed, to be honest with you. What did you think of the first issue, Michael? I liked it as, um... It's all set up, really. Yeah, but it's good set up. Oh, yeah. I like all the sword fights and bits, because my research for this came from reading Lone Wolf and Cub. No, no. Yeah, Lone Wolf and Cub. Well, I think Frank Miller's admitted he was very influenced by Lone Wolf and Cub, hasn't he? He worked on bits of it. He did the covers for the Dark Horse reprints, yeah. So yes, there is a lot of Lone Wolf and Cub to be found in this, if that's what you're looking for. Uh, Unlike part one, part two has a subtitle, Debts and Obligations. The cover again is by Miller and Rubenstein, in which Wolverine, claws unsheathed, leaps in for the kill. Uh, It's nicely coloured, although his hair being blue is a bit distracting. But her used to be blue for dark-haired people in comics, didn't it? The story picks up where part one left off. Wolverine and Yukio are attacked by assassins of the hand, the finest killers on earth, with each man worthy of a dozen ordinary fighters. They pose little threat to the Wolverine. Later, after ignoring Yukio's advances, Wolverine sleeps and Yukio meets with Lord Shingen. 
She has been tasked with gaining Wolverine's aid, and the attack by the hand was part of that plan. With Wolverine now in Yukio's debt, the second part of Lord Shingen's plan can proceed, the elimination of his enemy Katsuyori. Mariko and Nuburu will be there, as Katsuyori will not foresee an attack if Shingen's daughter is present. But if anything happens to her, Lord Shingen warns, Yukio will pay the price. Later that night, Yukio convinces Wolverine she is in debt to Katsuyori, who will not listen to reason. She proposes killing him, but Wolverine says that a softer approach may be preferable. They break into Katsuyori's place, but witness Katsuyori and his wife, along with Mariko and Noboru, watching a kabuki play. However, this is cover for Katsuyoru killing Mariko and Noboru, but Wolverine spots the play and counters it. Wolverine kills the kabuki assassins in a berserker rage, but Mariko is sickened by what she sees. Outside, Yukio blows up the car Katsuyori and his wife leave in, and then watches as Mariko leaves Wolverine dejected and alone. A small smile plays across her lips. <laughs> um, I've got to admit, I didn't understand the beginning of this issue. Why is Wolverine unconscious in the middle of a job? It um, doesn't pick up where the last issue left off. Wolverine and Yuko, Yukio are in a different location, wearing different clothes. I assumed a certain amount of time had passed and you'd been knocked out. But doing what? Well, the hand knock him out from behind. Okay, fair enough. It's a, a stun thing. It's ultimately not relevant to the story, but I, I was intrigued as to why Wolverine was in co- unconscious again at the beginning of part two, but obviously a certain amount of time has passed here. Yeah. Because they're not in an alleyway and Wolverine's not wearing regular clothes. They're both in bed and he's in costume. Well, they're not in bed, they're on a mattress, which I, I you know, I, I didn't quite understand. But All that being said, the two-page flash of Wolverine leaping through the window, taking many agents of the hand with him, as many other adversaries wait for him with swords and arrows, is one of Miller's finest pieces of work. Didn't he turn that into one of the trade paperback covers? Did he redraw this as a trade cover? I think, yeah, we saw it the other day. Did we? Is it the soft cover? At the, the comic mart. Right. Where there was like four different reprints of it on one oh, table. Oh, this, this story has been reprinted many, many, many times. Yeah, I'm sure this was a wraparound cover. Oh, alright. So he's, has he redrawn it, or did they use that art? They'd have to redrawn it, because... Because of the writing. the other way. So it does. Yes. Fair dues. Fair play. Uh, further to what I mentioned earlier, the narrative caption here that recap issue one and bring new readers up to speed with Wolverine's abilities could easily have been removed in a collected edition to fluidly enhance the story. It, it goes, it ties into the story as well, though. Whilst you talk about what's going on, he explains his powers. It does, uh, but you could lose a lot of that and it wouldn't matter. No, I still skipped it towards the last two as you, issues. As you got through the issues. Uh, I have Admantium Claws and I have a healing factor and it pretty much means I can kill people. That's not what I do. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. I know how to use them. Mm. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Um, it also says here that um, the dialogue is being translated from Japanese. It starts doing that in issue two and for the rest of the series, but it doesn't in issue one. No, it didn't bother with that in issue one, did it? It gave the reader credit for figuring it out. Yeah, we're in Japan. People are speaking, you know. People are going to be speaking Japanese. I think I can figure that out. Mm. Mm. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, Yukio's duplicitous machinations are revealed a little early here, for my taste. I know it's only a four-issue series, but I think this had been better if they teased this out for a few more pages, maybe even another issue. I do like her lines, though. The hand are the finest killers on Earth, each the equal of a dozen ordinary men. Wolverine does not stand a chance. 
followed by Wolverine standing slowly surrounded by fallen bodies yeah. in one of the best panels in the book. Although I don't understand why he's got yellow eyes. Which uh, John Romita Jr. will do several times. Yeah, Romita Jr. will mimic that quite a lot in Enemy of the State. Yeah. Won't he? Uh, one of the interesting things about this series, it doesn't shy away from Wolverine's attitude towards killing. But like we were discussing earlier on, it doesn't revel in it either. Mm. He doesn't kill unless he has to. But when he unsheathes his claws, he's like Raylan Givens. Yeah. I don't take my gun out unless I aim to shoot it. And he's the same with his claws. He doesn't pop his claws unless he's going to use them. By and large, if he can get away without killing people in this story, he does. Yeah. He's not just a murderous killing machine. Which is why I think he may have become as interesting a character as he is. Conflict is good story. Even better if your central character is conflicted with himself. Yeah. Spock being a prime example. But that's all I've gotten rid of, mostly. Yeah, well, I don't know. I've not read enough recent Wolverine to be able to comment. Yeah. I'm always, I always like now, I always think that the X-Men now is just so impenetrable, I probably would have no idea what was going on. Well, that is the problem with Wolverine now, though, with most stories. Because of the character he's become, he doesn't need to have a story, because he's Wolverine, he sells. And does he have, how many indiv- loan, how many titles does Wolverine have now? Does he only have, he has two, doesn't he? Astonishing Wolverine. He's got Savage Wolverine. I think that's the only one, isn't it? I thought there was a Max title as well. Um, I thought there was a Max title on Wolverine sure. Max, and there's a Sav- the Savage Wolverine. So I know there's only Savage now, that's right. right. Well, maybe the Max series is finished then. Um, the, the, that is a wonderful panel. Blood staining his claws. Tells us everything we need to know about the character, really. Mm. He doesn't always mask a lot in this story either, does he? No. Well, there's no point, really. Well, it's arguable that he doesn't really need to be wearing his costume. Yeah. Which, obviously, in the film version, he doesn't. Uh, waiting until the page where Yukio confronts Shingen and the plot stands revealed would have been better here if they hadn't tipped the hand that Yukio was a bad egg a few pages earlier. Still, the scene between Yukio and Lord Shingen is masterful, giving them characteristics in a very short amount of panel space. Yukio is arrogant and impatient, nobody a bootlicker. Shingen pretty much the template for the post-crisis Lex Luthor. Yeah. Isn't he? A businessman who everyone thinks is honourable but isn't. Yeah. That's Lex Luthor. Post-crisis Lex right there. Even looks like him in a couple of these panels. Mm. Not perhaps as porky. More the thinner Luthor of the later era, but still, same thing. President Shingen. Yeah. That would be good. <laughs> uh, Wolverine and Yukio attack Katsuyori's place by swimming in and approaching from the back. I do always wonder when we get scenes like this as to how heavy Admantium is. Would it not weigh him down, or would he still be as buoyant as the rest of us? If how strong he is to pull himself along as well. Yeah. And I always wonder about that. Does the adamantium skeleton weigh him down in any way? I mean, would it make him, like, much heavier? Or does well, it not? Is it very lightweight metal, but very tough? Well, isn't it only a very thin... It doesn't only lace his skeleton. Yeah, so it's not thick... Yeah, um... So I guess he's just Yeah, got, so he's, he's not solid adamantium, is he? He's got, like, tin foil. <laughs> Wrapped around his yeah. bones. <laughs> really, really strong tin foil. So you're saying Wolverine was a tin foil hat? <laughs> yeah. And believes in aliens? Alright, fair enough. Wolverine and Yukio storm Katsuyori's castle, which is an exceptionally well-done action sequence. Stealth and surprise are Wolverine's main tactics. 
Q multi-Python gang. <laughs> and uh, it's a very well-handled sequence. Again, Noboru's boot-licking skills are seen in full effect, with Katsuyori dismissing him with an open insult. Must we wait, Katsuyori-san? Our business later, Noboru, after the play. I'm amazed that Shingon, who professes to revere our ancient ways, should send an emissary so lacking in even elementary social graces. Boom! <laughs> Slap him down! Which is what he does. Yeah. It's very eloquent and well done, <laughs> but he slaps him down, doesn't he? But that's fair enough, because Noboru's an utter, utter unlikable character. Is he higher rank, though? It doesn't matter. It kind of does. If he's a lower rank than this other guy, and you don't use insulting me, I No, Noboru's a nothing, isn't he? Yeah. Let's be honest, he's a bootlicker of the highest order, living in the shadow of greater men. There's nothing to him at all, and Katsuyuri knows this. Yeah. Katsuyuri knows he's a waste of time. So he lets it slide. Yeah, so there's nothing Noboru can do about it. What's Noboru going to do? Yeah. Grovel. <laughs> the Kabuki play scene is again masterfully choreographed. A kabuki play is a Japanese dance drama staged with elaborate costumes and makeup. It's been a Japanese tradition since the early 1600s. The play Katsuyori puts on, Kushingura, which I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, Kushingura, the 47 Ronin, that's better, isn't it? It's called a lot, yeah. The 47 Ronin dates from the mid-1700s and is one of Japan's widest known and performed plays. It's currently being turned into a film starring Keanu Reeves. Okay. Did you know that? Whoa, look at all these Roni. <laughs> Dude! That would be quite awesome. This entire scene from Wolverine realising the Kapuki play is a staged murder attempt to him attacking the actor in midder and killing him before he hits the ground is again marvellously executed by Miller. Wonderful mixture of images and words. What if he's wrong, though? He's like, oh, this is a staged murder and he jumps out and he's just as an he's actor. He's just killed a bunch of actors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no great loss. <laughs> to the world <laughs> just killed a bunch of actors <laughs> oh well oh well just go down the road go to where somebody's been a waiter in LA <laughs> pick a couple of them I'm sure they're actors go to any LA diner go to any, any LA diner I'm sure you'll get a new, another couple of actors very simple uh, Yukio is also exceptionally busy off panel all of Katsuyori's guards are dead and she blows up their car whilst Wolverine is distracted inside but the fights it's the fight scene at the end of this issue it's no more than a couple of pages but it's absolutely blinding the lead actor draws his katana and the pieces suddenly fall into place Katsuyori's playing his ace against Mariko and her husband I counter the attack the actor's a pro a master of his craft without missing a beat he shifts targets from Mariko to me we pass in mid-air, stage lights flashing off sword and claw. His cut draws blood. So does mine. And he's dead. Yeah. So Wolverine's basically cut him in half, which is fantastic. I face the rest of the company. They're as ready to fight as their leader. He took a gamble and paid the price. His colleagues won't be as flamboyant. I want to spur Mariko a glance to see if she's okay, but I don't dare. And, it's, and then he just hacks him to bits. Yeah. <laughs> which is... It's a great, great, great scene. Absolutely fantastic. I like those Ronin with the hats they have. Do you remind me of the bad guys in um, Rayman? Oh, yeah, the funny little... They, yeah. they have a proper name, those hats. I can't remember what it is. Baskets? They, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> they look like baskets. Katsuyuru's respect, for lack of a better word, for Noboru, he slaps him. Yeah. Total bit slap. Oh, yeah. He doesn't like Noboru at all, does he? The fight scene at the end is largely silent. The climax to the issue is Wolverine takes out the fake Kabuki players. 
and it's one of the finest action beats in the comic. It's a little over two pages. Wolverine's berserker rage is well handled. It's actually misnamed. Whilst he's in a frenzy, he still knows what he's doing. Mm. He never flails around or he's uncoordinated. And he likes it. He likes it when this happens to it. Which leads to the climax where after he's gutted them all, Wolverine stands shoulders slumped as Mariko just walks away. Come on, she's got to know what he is. Yeah. And she, despite the odd beginning where I didn't understand where they were or what they were doing, this was a stunning issue. Claremont lets the words complement the story, never telling the reader what they are seeing. That's what the art's for. But rather telling the reader what the central character is feeling. Miller's art is well choreographed and the level of violence is handled extraordinarily tastefully. Not a lot of blood. Can you imagine (laughs) what this scene would be like today? 22 pages long. Well, that as well, but how how many decapitations? Heads would be rolling. Heads would be rolling. Right in front of the reader. Yeah. Blood and, yeah, it'd be, you know. Berserker ages are always fun, though. Berserker rage, schnicked. You know, um, in an interview with David Hayter, known as... The Metal Gear Solid Man. The voice of Solid Snake, who is also the um, writer for the screenplays of the Watchmen movie and... Is he? The first two Watchmen films. There's only one Watchmen film? No, the first two X-Men films. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, they were talking about the sequence at the beginning of X-Men 2. You know where he goes into... Oh, the Berserker raid in the X-Mansion. And he said they got told off by Fox that they, they couldn't have him killing too many people in the first one because of... Oh, boring. Like certificates and all that. Yeah, the rating. But they found a way to get away with it, with having him do it in the second one. So that entire scene in the second one is because they could never do it in the first one. And they found out is if they had all the bad guys were in masks, that's okay. And if they were harming children, that's also okay. So they have a bunch of masked men attack a school. Yeah. Gift. <laughs> what a way around it. Uh, we're going to have to take another break because my throat's a bit it today. So we'll take a break there while we get another drink and then we'll finish this. So you get two trailers this week for the price of one. We spoil you, we really do. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. And we're back. And Michael has used the opportunity to grab another chocolate biscuit. Whenever the opportunity arises. Whenever the opportunity arises. Uh, Wolverine Issue 3 also has a subtitle called Loss. It's by all the same people. The cover has Wolverine slumped to his knees drenched in shadow. It's the best one of the series. Do you think? Mm. Why do you like that one? I don't know. It's all... Black and moody. Yeah, but he just looks kind of like he's waiting for somebody to cut his head off. I like that he's or wearing... He's waiting for a train in London. Or he's waiting for a train in London. I like that he's wearing the jacket from Days of Future Past. Yeah. I thought that was a nice little continuity touch. I don't know if that was an accident. Could be. But it was a nice touch. He's Canadian. What coat would he wear? He'd wear a warm coat, wouldn't he? 
Whoever's positively Canadian. Uh, part three of the story is Logan is drowning his sorrows in a bar, his lover Yukio by his side. He picks a fight with a disgraced sumo and stumbles out of the bar with Yukio in tow. Asano Kimuru is waiting for him. Asano tells Logan that someone has taken control of the entire Japanese underworld and has welded them into a power base from which they can seize control of the country. Logan, not really thinking clearly, chooses to stay with Yukio rather than help his friend. The pair at the train tracks while Yukio cons Logan into playing chicken with a bullet tray, but he quickly falls asleep due to intoxication. Whilst Logan is in a fraught and dream-filled slumber, Yukio is accosted by the Hand, who give her one last chance to kill Logan and redeem herself in Lord Shingen's eyes. Instead, Yukio kills the Hand and grabs Logan to leave, but in his drunken stupor, he says the name Mariko, causing Yukio to leave him in anger. Yukio changes at Logan's hotel room, plotting her next move, when she is interrupted by Asano, whom she kills. However, she carelessly leaves the knife in it, and when Logan arrives, he notices the scent on the dagger matches the scent on the shuriken that knocked him out the night he arrived. For the first time, everything's clear. Yukio set him up and works for Shingen. Logan turns. Yukio never left, but does so now, and it is the Wolverine that pursues her across the Tokyo skyline. He puts it all together as he gains on her. Shingen was Asano's quarry. Katsuyuri, Shingen's only obstacle in controlling the gangs. Wolverine has been used. He manages to catch Yukio and they crash into the Zen Gardens of Kyoto, where they are both attacked by the Hand. In this spiritual place of tranquility, Logan kills most of the Hand, but Yukio escapes. Wolverine realises he's not a beast. A beast is what it is. It cannot change or grow. However, a man may change who he is. Wolverine is a man, and Shingen's mistake will cost him dearly. Uh, The drunken fight scene at the top of the issue is magnificent. It's funny because drunken Wolverine is funny. Yeah. But it's also a little sad in that this is a broken Wolverine. His mood is low. And the scene carries the weight of that. I did like the little dance he does mm. when he picks up the sumo warrior and then throws it on the floor. I like the smile he has when he lifts him up. The big grin. Because mm. I presume the sumo warrior will have thought that Wolverine was pretty easy to take down. I love that he chucks him through a window. Yeah. Everyone gets chucked through windows in films and TV shows, don't they? never pay for the... And yet, never pay for... No, he just leaves. Yeah. Maybe he gets the bill sent to Charles Xavier. <laughs> Wolverine turns his back on his friend... In favour of the new woman in his life, a manipulative woman with her own agenda, and Wolverine doesn't see it. Mm. Uh, The attack of the hand is again interesting, as they give Yukio a chance to kill Wolverine and redeem herself. But she really does seem to care about Wolverine, although let's not hide this. She is nuts, isn't she? She's absolutely crazy. This is highlighted where, in the middle of the fight with the hand, Yukio tries to wake up Wolverine and he calls her Mariko. Sadly, this sets her on the path that she could possibly have prevented if he just let Mariko go. But then we wouldn't have had a story, would we? I found it a little funny, she just left him there. Yeah, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't really get this, to be honest. As usual, in, I, I didn't get the taking him to the train track. Just to play chicken with the train. Just to play chicken with the train. Where he gets attacked. To let him fall asleep. Yeah. Where he has one of those prophetic dreams, which, as usual in narrative drama, is full of signs and portents. It looks pretty cool, though. It looks exceptionally cool, and it's very well drawn. And it basically, it's his subconscious mind piecing it all together. Yeah. Which is the realisation that he makes later on the issue. So it's actually a, a good narrative tool. It wasn't just a, a spooky David Lynch-esque um, surreal dream for the sake of there being a surreal dream, though. Midget dancing on the horse. Midget dancing on the horse. There was a reason for this being there. Yeah. Logan's subconsciousness, he's putting all the pieces together. Because he knows all the answers here. 
and then later on his consciousness goes eh wait a minute there's something a bit screwy here so yeah the dream sorry screwy here she took me to a train track to sleep to then wake me up to then let me sleep yeah so yeah you think you'd have figured that out wouldn't you yeah yes so it does serve a purpose the dream sequence but this whole scene was just a bit silly I get that the hand needed to contact Yukio to tell her that she's been given one more chance. Why do that in front of Wolverine? Yeah, I know he's asleep, but surely he could wake up at any minute. And then a cover's blown. The ninja, they jump away. They just disappear. Or he wakes up and then they pretend to attack her. Yeah, fair enough, I suppose. She could just say, Ah, the hand are here! (laughs) And Wolverine would go, Schnicked! Wait, what, we want to talk? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, gut. Wolverine does eventually wake up. He gets back to his apartment and he finds the dead body of Asana. What's great about this issue is that it is essentially the part of the movie where the hero has his moment of realisation that the path he's on is the wrong one or the moment that the quest he has to go on is solidified. It's the scene in Jaws where Ross Schneider looks across the ocean or the magnificent scene in Temple of Doom where Indiana Jones is brought back around in the thuggy cave and the men realise what they have to do and set about doing it. It's the hero moment. What's great about this is it's not just one scene, like unlike those two examples. The comic has the advantage of being able to pace its drama. And this entire comic, this entire issue, is the realisation scene for Wolverine culminating at the end, with Wolverine actually making a change to his character necessary for what was a big deal miniseries like this. I thought this was a great issue. It was a turning point for the series. It's one or two big long fight scenes, which is why I don't have many notes for it. But the latter half of the issue is another fight with the hand. Again, greatly choreographed by Miller. Clermont really sells the issue with the change in the characterisation of Wolverine. With him realising he's not a beast, but a man. And capable of changing and growing. And it's a seminal moment in the character's history to this point. But again, Clermont knows when to shut up. Yeah, the two-page fight scene towards the back of the issue between Wolverine and the Hand has no dialogue, no narration captions. It's just Wolverine fighting out of costume. Mm. Incredibly rare at the time that this was created, and you can see why this became such a seminal influence on the way Wolverine was portrayed in the X-Men movies and then in his own film. There's no costumes or anything. Um, Miller's fight scene choreography. It's growing redundant at this point in that I'm just keep saying how great it is. But this is a great example of Frank Miller's work rather than some of the lesser examples yes. of Frank Miller's work that we may have uh, slagged off. We may have gotten recently. I don't know we've slagged off because I don't think we've covered any of them. We've not. Honest with you. When we're not recording. <laughs> when we're not recording, yeah, we slag them off. What do you think about that one? I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed all of it. It's just. It's another Days of Future Past. The first and the last issues were the best. You've got nothing to say because it was great. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be shutting me up, Mm. but I can just talk, kind of. Miller's looking quite millery on that half a splash page. You think? See, I think that looks more like Joseph Rubens. His square eyes are coming through. Hmm. He's not quite the Frank Miller yet that we will know as Frank Miller. There's there's bits every... Yeah, every now and again somebody will have huge hands. Yeah. And you'll go, ah, that's Frank Miller. (laughs) Maybe he was really blocky like the Frank Miller we know and just the... And the Incas rounded it off. The Incas just gone, this is pretty crap. <laughs> the Inca fixed it and yeah. indirectly made Frank Miller a superstar. <laughs> yeah. Is that what you're saying? 
<laughs> his career lies on uh, yeah. someone not on liking accidents. his work. Yeah. Fair enough. The final chapter is called Honor. The final cover of the series is Wolverine lighting a cigar, the light of the match being the only illumination pointing a crossbow at an off-screen adversary, as usual for Frank Miller. It has a great deal of shading. Interestingly, on none of the covers has Wolverine been wearing his mask, but he's not really wearing much on the interiors either, has he? So no. Maybe it's only interesting to me. Issue 4. Wolverine hits Shingen hard. He disrupts the heroin deals, business meets and other gangland activities and at all of them he leaves the same message. Tell Shingen that Wolverine is coming for him. As word reaches Shingen's ears he realises he has underestimated Wolverine and summons the hand. They are waiting as Yukio attempts to breach the home of Clan Yoshida. She is taken alive. Inside, Mariko laments her life and her father and husband and begs the Elder Gods for guidance. Wolverine prepares the weapons he has taken from the hand for battle. The players all converge. Lord Shingen beats Yukio and prepares to kill her when Mariko stops him. Before he can punish her, word reaches him that all his patrols have been taken down. The Wolverine has arrived. Ever the coward, Noboru flees, taking Mariko with him. But when he pulls a gun on Wolverine, Yukio kills him. She cuts Mariko's robe and places it around Wolverine before taking her leave after a kiss. Wolverine pursues Shingen without looking Mariko in the eyes. She knows how this ends. The fight is bloody and brutal, this time with real swords, but the outcome is quick and fatal, and Wolverine unsheathes his claws in Shingen's face. Mariko enters the room and picks up the Honor Sword from issue 1. Honor demands she takes Wolverine's life or die in the attempt, but Mariko points out that the Honor Sword of the clan Yoshida is not merely for the leader of the clan, but for the samurai who best exemplifies the qualities of Honor, qualities her father forfeited long ago. The sword is Logan's. For had Shingen succeeded, it would have fallen to Mariko to slay him herself and then commit seppuku, for the honour of Clan Yoshida. Logan and Mariko rest for a while before sending out the invites to the wedding of Logan-san and Mariko Yoshida. Needless to say, the X-Men are the first to be invited. The early pages of the comic have Wolverine slowly and systematically destroying Shingen's empire, which is a really good sequence showing how Wolverine has changed how he works whilst being in Japan. He's had his head handed to him enough to realise that these guys are good and just slice and dice doesn't cut it. I thought that was quite a subtle opening. Yeah. I love Schnicked. <laughs> Along with Thwip, it's yeah. my favourite sound effect in comics. Not Grunk. Schnicked. No, no <laughs> Grunk was a was um, a dialogue thing, wasn't it? Was it wasn't no? really a sound. It, it was chewy talking, yeah. wasn't it? So it wasn't wasn't a sound effect. Dialogue, was, I like how on most of the panels he's just the shadow. Yeah, he's he's in the shadow. He appears, he disappears. Mm. He's almost Batman-esque in what he's doing. Wolverbat. Wolverbat. And especially with the scene where you, he's got the mask on, which he does have in this one, oddly. And it is drawn like he's got bat ears. Maybe he puts the mask on now he's in hero mode. Maybe. Maybe he wasn't worthy to wear it before. Mm. That's possible. There is a great scene in Shingen's home. Shingen's bootlickers all inform him that Wolverine is making a monkey of him. Shingen, all arrogant, informs them ninjas have been dispatched. He then gets a box with ninja hoods in it and Miller completely changes Shingen's expression to being one of a man completely pissed off. It's great. The only thing that would have made this better is if the box had had ninja heads in it. 
Yeah. <laughs> that would have been funnier. But this is a newer kind of Wolverine. Oh, yeah. Isn't it? it? So he's not he's not chopping people's heads off at this point. The truly great thing about this issue is how much of Wolverine's antics are off screen. Mm. And we only hear about the ramifications of what he's doing. So much of what Wolverine's up to here, like Michael said, it's, it's off screen. It's in the shadow. We're not seeing it. We're not privy to what he's doing. It's really good. I really act liked it. I do. I also think that this was the first time we got a no quarter ask non given during the fight scene. Mm. You remember them? Claremont used them all the time when he was doing uh, X Men. The final fight between Shingen and Wolverine is carried exclusively by Miller's art. Claremont wisely knowing yet again when to shut up. It's an intense and brutal fight scene, far better than the cg fueled combat of the movies, as it's all up close and personal. The final panel, where Wolverine places his fist on Shingen's forehead and then just unsheathes his claws in his face, is very effective. And his eyes glowing red. Yeah, bloodlust. See, is that his berserker rage calming down? Could be. It's good, isn't it? It's good, it's an act. Again... The fight scene is largely bloodless. Yeah. Surprisingly, but it's three entire pages of Miller's fight choreography carrying the story. Claremont doesn't do anything. Keeps his mouth shut, because he knows when to. There's this thing where you're reading it where Shingen is winning until the last mm. three pages where he gets his chance and just... And just blows it. Yeah. It's, great. it's an absolutely fantastic fight sequence. Really well done. The ending is spectacular. And really quite unexpected. Mariko explains that Wolverine is far more of a samurai than her father ever was, and Noboru never had any honour to begin with. By disposing of the man who ruined Clan Yoshida through greed, Wolverine has proven himself worthy of the honour sword. An excellent ending to the story, culminating in Wolverine's proposal of marriage. I loved that. I love that she zigged when Wolverine thought she was going to zag. Yeah. And she's like, well, actually, my father dishonoured the sword long before you got in touch with him. By killing him, you have restored honour to Clan Yoshida, and now I can carry on in that vein. Mm. It's really good. I thought it was a really good ending. All told, an excellent miniseries that takes Wolverine's character and elevates him to another level. Arguably, he could have left the X-Men here and carried his own series from this point, but it was not to be. And he slowly overshadowed the other X-Men in the book and was then given his own series in the late 80s, I think, wasn't it? Nowadays, Marvel seems to be incapable of producing a comic that doesn't have him in it. This series, however, is well worth rediscovering. Although the back issues are still pricey, it has been reprinted numerous times in both cheap and expensive editions, and it's well worth seeking out if you've never read it. It's a surprise how great Miller was at the top of his game. So used have we become to years now of oversized hands and feet. The real shocker here is Clermont. The prose is elegant and realistic, never overshadowing the art, and if it does occasionally become flowery, that's largely due to the time that it was written rather than any fault in Clermont's writing. The story carried on into Uncanny X-Men 172 and 173. The cover to 172 was the final panel of this series, where sadly the marriage did not take place. First issue of an American X-Men comic I ever picked up. Issue 172. And it was a downer one. Everything comes full circle, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Some reprints of this actually have those two issues in them. Yeah. Because it's considered part of this story. But for me, 
it's a bit jarring to go from Frank Miller to Paul Smith. Yeah. So having them in the same graphic novel confuses me. I like this ending. A little bit. Why why don't we go and ruin it? What, by not having him get married? Yeah. I don't know. Like I said, this could have been the end of Wolverine's story. And if the or it could have led into his own series where he's not in the X Men anymore and he's married to Mariko. They could have carried on the story, him running clanless Yoshida. Yeah. With Mariko, that probably would have worked. They probably just didn't want to take him out of the X Men. It was excellent. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Because I'm always worried of picking stuff for you. Because I was like, is he going to like this? Because I'm pretty sure you're not going to like Cosmic Spider Man. Oh, it's fun. We'll see how that goes when we get to covering it. So that was the Wolverine miniseries. Uh, for the last seven years, X-Men movie producer Lauren Shuler Donner and actor Hugh Jackman and have mentioned this story as part of the promotion for the last few X-Men movies and the first Wolverine solo movie. Both have said this was a favourite of those, a seminal story for the character, and both of them were determined to get it on film, but didn't want to rush it. Maybe they should have waited a bit longer. Yeah. It's not to say The Wolverine, released in the summer of 2013 and directed by James Mangold from a script by Mark Bombach and Christopher McQuarrie, is a bad movie. It's a solid and entertaining flick, much better than X-Men Last Stand and Wolverine Origins. But what it isn't is an adaptation of this comic. Oh, sure, there are some nods, some subtle, some not, but they essentially take all the characters from the story and they take the setting of this story and then come up with a completely different story. Okay. Which works in the movie's favour because it isn't an adaptation of the comic. So I can't then sit here and say it's a terrible adaptation of the comic because it's not an adaptation of the comic. Yeah. In fact, for Wolverine 3, you could actually tell that story that's in that comic. Now that they've set it up. Now that they've set it up in the second movie. Hmm. And you could, you'd have to make a few minor changes because of how the film differentiates. Yeah. But for the most part, you could tell that as Wolverine 3 and it would still work. Maybe they will. Maybe they will. Or maybe Days of Future Past will be Hugh Jackman's last ever appearance as Wolverine. Mm. Who knows? I think he still looks pretty good. I think he could still pull it off for a few more movies, but who knows? Maybe that's just me. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, we are doing an email show mixed with a commentary on the current state of comic books. An email slash show. An email slash fiction show. Which email yeah. writers <laughs> do you want to get involved in slash fiction? Let's not go with that. Let's, let's not even explore the slash options no. available to us in that particular endeavour. So uh, we hope you enjoyed that. The Wolverine has long been gestating, but we finally got around to doing it. Mm-hmm. I think Batman Hush has now become our Wolverine. Yes. <laughs> Something we've talked about doing for years and have never actually done. Maybe in maybe in a week or two. Three, four, whatever. Five, six, seven. Who knows? Alright, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye. Hey 
Image Hits Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics.virginmedia.com We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.